You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Our reading today is Luke chapter 18 and it's verses 9 to 14. It's on page 1052 in the Church Bibles, and it's also up on the screen behind me. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's an honor to be here, to be in your city, to be in your country, and most importantly for the moment, to be here before you in your church and in the service to continue the series that has recently begun here, this series on a new kingdom and a new king considering the different aspects of this king's Kingdom. The kingdom of God is something that is a prominent theme in the Bible. The word kingdom is mentioned over a hundred times in the New Testament, primarily in the Gospels, and it's something that is paramount for people to understand if you want to understand more fully what it is to be a Christian or what it means to follow Christ because Christ is a king and Christ is establishing his kingdom. The kingdom of God is the way things are supposed to be. If you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer before, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer instructs his disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is the way things are supposed to be. Kevin Van Hooser, who is a systematic theologian and professor, says, I think we've got the quote from him here, the kingdom of God is the breaking in of God's reign to defeat the powers of darkness and disorder. Liberating the oppressed is God's signature mark. Christ setting the captives free is the high point of the dramatic conflict between Satan and the Son of God on a stage that includes both heaven and earth. And something very interesting about the kingdom, the kingdom primarily, though not exclusively, the kingdom of God primarily is ushered in through the church. James Hunter is a professor at the University of Virginia in America and a great uh, Christian scholar and a scholar of culture. And he simply says this, the vocation of the church is to bear witness to and be the embodiment of the coming kingdom. The vocation of the church is to bear witness to and to become the embodiment 
of the coming kingdom. He goes on to say, if Christians want to change the world, Christians need to change their hearts. And so you can take this from a macro level to a micro level, that the kingdom comes primarily through the work of the church. The church is what God uses to make all things new, not to make all new things. The Scriptures teach us that God and Christ, through His church and His people, will make all things new. And that's part of the work of the kingdom. He will do that collectively, and He will do that individually, even in our own hearts. As our hearts are being made new, if you are a follower of Christ, God is using even your own life to make His world new. Therefore, we as Christians, if you are inside the boundary of the Christian faith, some of you understand fully or exploring what it might mean to consider the truth claims of Christianity. Some of you might even be skeptics of the truth claims of Christianity. But if you are a follower of Christ, it is our blessing and our responsibility to demonstrate to the world the kingdom of God in our own lives, individually, in our families, in our communities, to our city, to the world, and collectively through the church. Today's parable and the story in Luke 18 is a representation of the kingdom of God. And we're going to consider this concept of what it means to be accepted into the kingdom, this concept of kingdom acceptance. And one of the things that we're going to see in this story, which is indicative of all aspects of God's kingdom, and we're going to see it highlighted in this particular story and in this particular passage, is that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. God's kingdom is a countercultural kingdom that has characteristics like, in God's kingdom, the weak are strong. In God's kingdom, the foolish are wise. In God's kingdom, the last will be first. You see, the message of the gospel and the message of the kingdom is a countercultural message that is compelling for people who need it. Jesus very explicitly says this, speaking about his mission on earth, that he did not come for the righteous, but he came for the unrighteous. He did not come for those who are well, he came for the sick. In fact, explicitly in Luke 19, verse 10, which is just the next chapter from where we are this evening, he simply says that he came to seek and save the lost, which is good news. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news for those who are lost. It's good news for those who are sick. It's good news for those who are unrighteous. And in this story that Jesus tells through this parable, what I want us overarchingly to see is that God accepts our brokenness and He rejects our righteousness. Because God is building a kingdom that is an upside-down kingdom from the way of this world, the overarching message that I want us to consider, the big idea, if you will, from Luke 18 is simply this, God accepts our brokenness and he rejects our righteousness. We'll look at this in two more specific ways momentarily when we see that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. But I want us to think just for a moment before we get into those two key points within the message, I want us to think about the concept of acceptance. And I want us to realize 
and to admit some reluctantly, maybe, that we all want to be accepted. We all want to be proven. We all want to be seen as right, as justified. And so, so much of our pursuits in life are driven by wanting to be accepted, wanting to be approved of, wanting to be whole, wanting to be justified. And so, we pursue all these endeavors, many of them which are really good endeavors. They become off when they become God to us as opposed to simple good things like relationships, work, career, studies, possessions, etc. We tend to look to these things, even our own accomplishments, even specifically our religiosity, as if we're building a resume before God or building our academic transcript before Him in a spiritual way in order for Him to accept us. And when we do that, the problem is it leaves us empty. It's not fulfilling. And this is really captured remarkably well, believe it or not, by famous American actor Jim Carrey. I don't know if there's any Jim Carrey fans out there, various films that we could enumerate, and we won't get off key on that. But Jim Carrey, remarkably, in 2016, at the Golden Globe Awards, when he was receiving an award, gave this excerpt within his acceptance speech. Thank you. I am two-time Gold Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know when I go to sleep at night? I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm a two-time Gold Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being a three-time Gold Globe winning actor Jim Carrey because then... I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. I'm going to talk about the truth of God's Word and the gospel breaking through and upside down uncommon places through the mouth of Lloyd Christmas and Ace Ventura himself at the Golden Globe Awards. That's profound. He's hitting at this reality that we all want to be accepted and we have different avenues and venues and relationships and pursuits that we think will allow us to be approved and accepted or, as the Bible says, justified, which brings me to one more illustration before we get into our two key points. Harold Abrams, one of your own. 1920s Olympian, really highlighted in the 1980s film, Chariots of Fire. Doesn't get quite as much press, understandably, as Eric Little, the great Scottish runner whom the film is primarily about. And there's some amazing things that Eric Little says in this film, very famously, that when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. Some of you might know that. Harold Abrams actually says something equally as profound, just not quite as encouraging in the film as well. At one point, and Abrams, by the way, was Little's greatest rival. He won the 100 meters in the 1924 Olympics. But at one point, Harold Abrams exclaims this, speaking about the race that he is about to run. And I want you to think about him saying this about the race he's about to run, analogous to the way we approach 
our lives. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, which is just four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. I will look down the corridor of the track, which is only four feet wide, and I will have ten lonely seconds to justify, to be approved of, to be accepted in his whole life. Well, I don't know what your corridor is metaphorically. I don't know what your ten lonely seconds are, but here's what I know. To be human is to long to be accepted. To be human is to long to be approved of. To be human, especially on a spiritual level, is to want to be justified. And here we have this story with the overarching message of God communicating that He accepts brokenness and He rejects righteousness. Why? Because He opposes pride and He gives grace to those who are humble. This story has two characters, two men in it, two prayers and two different conclusions. Let's look at the characteristics of the first prayer in this passage that really embodies and encompasses this concept of God opposing the proud. The setting in this story is public worship. It's important for us to understand contextually where these things are coming from. Of course, parables, or maybe I shouldn't say of course, It's helpful to know that parables were actually fictitious stories that Jesus told to illustrate, oftentimes deep and profound points, seeking to do so in simple ways. However, I even heard Ralph say last week, parables aren't always as simple as one might think they are. But Jesus creates this story to illustrate this point that he opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. This is taking place in public worship at the daily temple worship, which happened at dawn and 3 p.m. The character who exemplifies the opposition of the proud in this is a Pharisee who was well-respected, cream of the crop in society, and very religious. And then Jesus helps us in verse 9 by simply telling us who he is telling this parable to. In verse 9, Jesus says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, and look down on everyone else. I'm going to tell this story. Another way of saying it would be, Jesus was telling this story to elder brothers. I don't know how familiar you are with the Gospels and the different things that Jesus said or the different stories that Jesus told. Many people are familiar with the parables that exist in Luke 15. And oftentimes, interestingly enough, there's three parables within that whole chapter, but the one that is the most prominently familiar to most people is the parable of what people refer to as the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son but we've really been deceived if we think that that's what the parable is about because at the beginning of Luke 15, Jesus essentially says the same thing he does at the beginning of this section in Luke 18, that he's telling these parables to those who were confident in their own righteousness. So interestingly enough, as a side note, I would argue that the third parable in Luke 15 is actually even more about the elder brother than it is the younger brother and about his lostness 
And you might think, well, how was the elder brother lost? And I'll tell you, he was lost not in unrighteousness, but he was lost in self-righteousness. And Jesus had a particular penchant for bearing down on people who thought they were better than other people and who thought that they could earn their acceptance and their justification before God. And this person here in his prayer clearly believed his righteousness is what made him acceptable before God. And he wanted everyone to know it. So he decided to pray in public and to pray aloud in public and to pray robustly in public. Even though we know Jesus himself in Matthew 6, speaking of him teaching the disciples to pray, actually discouraged all these components of his prayer. But he didn't care about that. What he cared about was standing by himself, praying aloud, giving unsolicited ethical advice to everyone that could hear, and embedding a sermon and teaching in his prayer. That's not what prayer is for. I unfortunately have a negative example of myself when I was a youth worker in graduate school, studying theology and the Bible, getting real smart on things, becoming exceedingly righteous, or so I guess I thought, was leading a small group of some what we call high schoolers. Um, These people, these kids that were in, or students that were in my group, or 17 or so, one of them happened to be a new believer and a new Christian, and he was so refreshing in so many ways, including he just didn't know the categories and wasn't afraid to say whatever. And one time at the end of the group, I finished the group by praying, which is not uncommon. And at the end of my prayer, he genuinely asked me, if I was praying to talk to God or to teach them something. And I said, Dan, that's a really good question. I think I was doing the latter instead of the former, which actually doesn't really qualify as prayer. Well, that's what this man was doing. He was praying with pride and righteousness because his prayer was centered on himself And godly prayer is to be centered on Christ. The characteristics of this man's prayer, which would be rejected by God because of pride, were self-obsession, self-sufficiency. He says, I, a lot. It's his favorite pronoun. I, I, I. He's self-sufficient. He's prideful. He's also self-delusional. Joseph Conrad your own novelist in the book, Lord Jim, says, it is my belief that no man ever understands quite his own artful dodges to escape the grim shadow of self-knowledge. It is my belief that no man ever understands his own artful dodges like a boxer to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. This Pharisee did not want self-knowledge. He did not want to see himself. He wanted to hear himself. He wanted to justify himself because he wanted to establish his own righteousness, evidenced by the fact when he gives his spiritual resume. He talks about how often he fasts and when he fasts and what he tithes, all which, by the way, were far more than was required by the law, and in fact, were far more than was, requi- than was even normal amongst the large group of Pharisees. He was better than all the rest 
And so he had decided this is what makes me acceptable. Before we move on to uh, the aspect of humility seen in this other man, a couple thoughts to reflect upon or challenges. One, this is us. I don't know you. I know myself. And I know humans. And have a pretty decent record of trafficking in churches and Christians throughout my life. And I've never been in one church and I've never been amongst any group of spiritually minded religious people that don't struggle with self-righteousness. That's why Jesus addressed it so regularly in the gospels. But most importantly, I know myself better than anybody. And I know this is a deep struggle daily where we have to believe the gospel again and again that God rejects the proud, but he accepts the humble. Because self-righteousness, by the way, ultimately leads to essentially one of two things. Burnout, which oftentimes looks like cynicism, or a condemning, judgmental, contemptuous spirit towards yourself and other people. And guess what? People don't like to be around people that are judgmental, self-righteous, and condemning. People that don't need God's grace. That's what is interesting about this man. He didn't think that he needed God's grace, not knowing this statement. You're never so good that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. I'm sorry, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. You're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace, but here's the good news of the gospel. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. You're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. He thought he was, but you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And this is good news not only for us, but it was specifically good news for this man in the story who was a publican, not a Pharisee. He was the anti-Pharisee. He was a tax collector. He was a scumbag in society. He was not well-liked. He was not well-respected. He was not approved of, and he definitely was not seen as someone who was righteously religious. But one thing we do see from him in this story is that he was needy. And there's a lot of space in the kingdom for people that are needy. After all, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came for the unrighteous. He came for those who were sick, and this man knew He was needy, he knew he was sick, he knew he was unrighteous, and he knew that he had nowhere else to go. So he shows up at public worship and prays a prayer that is filled with humility. A prayer that God delighted to hear. C.S. Lewis says this about humility, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble. He will not always be telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. In fact, he will not be thinking about humility, period. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Reminds me of the great hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This man brought nothing. He had no resume. He had no transcript. All he did with his hands actually was beat his breast. Interestingly enough, the only other example in the New Testament of someone beating their chest or having their chest beaten 
You know where? On the cross. This guy got it. He understood what God accepts. He accepts our brokenness. He does not accept our righteousness. This man understood the gospel and he understood grace, which always runs downhill to those who are down and out. That's the way that the kingdom of God works. It runs downhill to those who are down and out. Jesus, or Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, in the Old Testament says, he would be numbered with the transgressors. And here's the truth. If Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, and you don't number yourself with the transgressors, then what's the logical conclusion? Conclusion: Jesus doesn't number himself with you. If Jesus is the Messiah that numbers himself with the transgressors, the sinners, the weak, the humble, the sick, the sore, if that's who Jesus identifies himself with and you don't identify yourself in those categories, then guess what? Jesus actually does not identify himself with you. But if you do embrace these realities about who we are, weak, wounded, sick, and sore, as the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, says? Or what about the hymn we sang already this evening? Out of my sickness, into thy health. Out of my wanting, into thy wealth. Out of my sin, and into thyself, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Into the glorious gain of thy cross, Jesus, I come to thee. The prophet Isaiah in another section, chapter 55, says these beautiful poetic words. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross we cling. It's important to note that this man's posture, his literal posture, but more importantly, his spiritual heart posture in this moment is not intended to be a one-time thing. This is not representative simply of conversion. Martin Luther said that repentance is a way of life. This is to be our daily process. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We've got to receive God's grace anew every day. We've got to be humbled by God's grace every day. Jesus says something very interesting in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's hard to describe how shocking that statement would have been to the people that originally heard Jesus because no one could imagine Anyone more righteous than the Pharisees, more religious than the Pharisees, better than the Pharisees. They had it all together. And then Jesus says, well, unless you're more righteous than them, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what do we conclude about that? They were not righteous because they brought their own righteousness They brought their own religiosity. They brought their own spiritual resume, none of which would work 
What the gospel tells us is we don't bring our own righteousness. That's why we need an alien righteousness. And how do we receive the alien righteousness that God offers? He gives it to us through substitutionary atonement, through the person of Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. It's what converted Martin Luther, actually. He was a fastidious monk, legalistic, moralistic, to an exponential degree, until he understood for the first time Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when he knew that God required a righteous standard. He was well aware of that, but what he was not well aware of until his conversion was that that which God required, he provided through his son, our substitute, who gave us an alien righteousness. So we don't have to try hard to be righteous. We receive the righteousness of Jesus and through the work of the Spirit, we become righteous, not in and of ourselves, but through the righteousness that is alien from Christ. God accepts our brokenness. He rejects our righteousness. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The last point I want us to consider is what impact might this reality, this gospel reality have upon not only our lives, but your church? in the world around us. I'd just simply say this. Individually, you need repentance. Relationally, with your friendships, they need you to repent to them. If you're married, I promise you, your spouse needs your repentance. If you're a parent, one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is your repentance. And guess what? The city of Manchester needs city churches repentance. The world needs the church's repentance. There's an American author and pastor who worked on campus, a guy named Donald Miller, who wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz some 15 or so years ago. And he described one particular event when he was working as a campus minister on the campus of Reed College in the Northwest of America. Reed College was uber liberal as in like exponentially liberal, which I'm sure this is true here like it is in America. All universities are liberal, and I'm not talking about politically, I'm talking about like holistically. But Reed College was to the next degree, and they had this annual festival called Ren Fair that was apparently like the height of hedonism and debauchery annually on campus where people just ran rampant and wild with immorality and you name it. Well, Donald Miller and his team, staff team, who were ministering on the campus had an idea. They said, what if this year at the festival, we set up a confession booth? And his other team members were like, I don't know how that's going to go. I don't think that these people in this environment are really going to be prone to confession. And Donald Miller said, I don't want to set up a confession booth for them to confess their sins to us, I want to set up a confession booth for us to confess our sins to them. And his team said, that sounds like an amazing idea. You see, because humility and repentance change people. They changed Dwight Moody's son. Dwight Moody, 20th century preacher, evangelist, in America, based out of Chicago. 
They say during his heyday, he was known in the city of Chicago as the evangelist. It'd be a pretty good way to be known. The evangelist. Well, his son, in a book called PK, recounts his own personal testimony. And he said, I became a Christian not because my dad was an amazing preacher, even though he was. I became a Christian not because my dad always taught us the Bible and prayed for us and all these other spiritually religious things. He said, I actually became a Christian because one day when I had a friend over, my dad unjustly rebuked me in front of my friend, sent my friend home and sent me to bed. I went into my bed dejected, discouraged, angry at my father. And then my father, after having done that, realized he was wrong. And he said, he came in my room that evening I acted like I was still asleep. And my father kneeled beside my bed and prayed a prayer of confession and repentance for his wrong done to me. And I acted like I was asleep the whole time. He concluded the prayer and he said, it was in that moment that I became a Christian. Humility and brokenness is what God accepts And humility and brokenness is what changes people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for the stories that you give us. Jesus, we thank you that you're a new king doing new things. We need new things. We need brokenness and we need humility. We need to repent of our own righteousness and pride. We pray that you would help us to do that individually and collectively. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.